Hello, everyone, and welcome to my digital talk. Today, I have a very distinguished guest from Australia, because the topic of this talk is Australia, the eagle and the dragon. Graham Connolly, my guest today, has a broad commercial and public law practice. He appears regularly as counsel in trials and appeals in both the federal and New South Wales courts and tribunals, and has appeared successfully in applications and appeals to the High Court of Australia. Mr. Connolly has advised on and appeared as counsel for the Australian government and the state of New South Wales in constitutional, public law and public international law cases. He also advised the Australian government on national security law and public international law matters. Mr. Connolly is also a lecturer in Australian constitutional law at the University of Sydney and is the principal examiner in constitutional law for the legal profession admission board. He also presents to continued legal education and professional development seminars on various legal issues and questions. And finally, he's a frequent commentator for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's radio and news television services, as well as a casual guest on Australian news television. And his writings have been published by various prominent newspapers. So welcome uh, to my digital talk today. And as you can see from the title, we have a very, very tough topic to cover in the next 60 minutes. Now, Australia has witnessed a kind of a spiral of diplomatic tensions and escalations in recent times. The Chinese government has warned Australia to distance itself from the United States amid growing tensions between the two countries, saying it will be extremely dangerous for Canberra to get involved. China is Australia's largest trading partner, while the USA is one of its, if not the most important, strategic allies. But Beijing, Beijing says any show of support for the letter will deliver its economy a fatal blow. And we've been witnessing several steps in that direction by the Chinese government. So my first question to you, Gray, is what does it mean for Australia to navigate between the United States on the one side and China on the other side, between the key strategic ally and between the largest trading partner? And how significant is actually Australia's dependence on China's, China's economy in reality? Um, well, first of all, before I answer anything, I have to get the usual disclaimer out. All of the views that I will express uh, in this and views, they do not uh, they do not represent the views of any aspect of the Australian government that I've ever advised, served in, or worked for. So these are just purely my personal views. Uh, Australia, Australia, as I always say to people, uh, particularly non-Australians is a massive island at the bottom of the world with 26 million people and that's and that's us and when uh you're a country like australia which is our size and which has our smaller population and our obvious vulnerabilities the importance is the importance to australia of alliances just cannot be overstated and so australia obviously uh many people would know uh that Australia comes out of, say, the British Empire. Australia is obviously a, a once British imperial settlement. It federates in 1901 and becomes a country. One of the biggest drivers for Australia becoming a country uh, in 1901, its own independent nation state, is security. So security drives a huge amount of Australia's thinking. And it, it drove the federation movement. I always say, for instance, explain the difference between Australia and America, is that when the Americans uh, create their country, they're creating their country to ensure liberty or freedom. When Australians come together to form their country, it's to provide security. And so in Australia, for instance, our, our national government is stronger, say, than it is in the United States. And we expect things of our national government in terms of being able to secure the country that perhaps are different from other people. 
But one of the reasons why in Australia we have these uh, these demands placed on our government and and so on is because we have such a large country to secure and we have such such a limited number of people to do it with. So allies are very, very important to Australia. Now, Australia in its history has had obviously been part of the British Empire in two world wars and with the Second World War and so on, we became very close friends with the Americans and we're the only country, we're the only American ally that has fought with the Americans at every war since the First World War. And so Australia prizes the American alliance, the American security alliance as foundational. Now, at the same time, Australia's number one trading partner uh, is China. China is an enormous customer of Australia from everything from iron ore and gas to universities. I mean, China is our number one source of students. So it's very, very difficult for Australia to uh, publicly anyway navigate that relationship. And so I think Australia's approach to current uh, unhappiness is to obviously form a coalition like we have uh, to try and get an inquiry into the virus and then to work with part part of that coalition. At the same time, I think Australia will be very reluctant to have a longer term uh, problem with China. I think that's not just the fact that they are obviously so big and such an important customer, but I think Australians are fairly realistic and there would be nothing worse for Australia than the backing of the Chinese into a corner. And I think Australia is very sensitive to the fact that the, uh, the Chinese government Beijing, for lack of a better word, has really suffered a degree of loss with its own people. And particularly with what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, particularly for Australia, there are there are 100,000 Australians who live and work in Hong Kong. Um, I had a family member, an older family member, who was once one of them. So Australia has very, very deep linkages with China. And I think uh, we would be very reticent to escalate any problems beyond what we already have. Mm -hmm. Um, Australia was also the country that was uh, pressing for a global inquiry into COVID-19. Now, obviously, we are still amidst um, of a COVID-19 virus outbreak, and uh, it was the country, uh, among other Western countries, uh, that was really, really pushing for this kind of uh, inquiry. Um, regarding the origin of the virus. How did this affect actually the current uh, relations with China? We know that uh, they were not just, uh, they didn't just remain at the diplomatic language uh, with certain threatening uh, of retaliation on the side of China, but there were also tariffs introduced um, to Australia. Is this linked? Um, to, to the to the inquiry into COVID-19 or is it something deeper behind it that we want to unpack? Um, there are, uh, the public answer would probably be no, but obviously Australia pushing for the inquiry did not help uh, in terms of relations with the China that probably feels quite bruised. Australia actually has a free trade agreement with so, we, to the degree that Australia will respond to China on these issues, it will probably be in accordance with the provisions of the, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. I mean, that's that's what we will do. And I think we will play, uh, to use a cricket parlance, uh, we will play a very straight bat. We will not try and inflame the situation any further. In relation to the inquiry, there is an obvious problem with how, not just how China handled this, but how the World Health Organization uh, handled this. I, I think... It's, it's one thing to say that, that China has problems. It's another thing, again, for the World Health Organization to have behaved as deplorably as it has. And it's a very big problem for a country like Australia, where, it, as I said at the very beginning, we're at the bottom of the world. Australia had a tremendous problem with the Spanish flu after the First World War. And so Australia is very, very sensitive to the fact that we, we do not have the cheek-by-jowl existence of other people. Uh, we are somewhat more probably more susceptible to viruses spreading simply because we don't have the immunity so that other populations may have. And uh, the one big problem with the Chinese explanation for the virus uh, about the wet market was obviously anyone who's travelled in Asia uh, knows these wet markets are everywhere. If, if the, the virus spreads simply through a animal-to-human transmission in a wet market, given how many of these wet markets there are, we should be having these sort of catastrophic viruses all the time. 
but we are not. And so I think just as a matter of just good, being a good international public citizen, I think we all want to get a handle on the virus where it began. If it has a benign explanation, so be it. But really it's up to the Chinese, particularly as they aspire to become a a, a prominent member of the international community in, that, in the sense of being a law-abiding member, it will want to have a proper investigation. And I think our best way of, of dealing with China is by presenting not just our free trade agreement, but the expectation that China would want to behave as a responsible international citizen. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, the current uh, relationship with uh, the US administration? How would you assess uh, Australia's relationship with the United States during Trump administration? And do you uh, foresee a change, a shift in this relationship based on uh, the presidential election outcome. Uh, on the one side, uh, there is still um, certain assessment pointing to a possibility that Trump will get re-elected, but on the, on the other side, also an increasing prognosis uh, pointing to uh, Biden becoming the next uh, US president. Uh, is there any kind of uh, analysis on this so coming from uh, Australia and what is your personal point of view, of course, on that matter? Um, well, I, I always use the line whenever someone says to me about the Australia-US relationship, I always say if the Australia-US relationship could survive uh, the Nixon and Whitlam years uh, during the Vietnam War, it was became very testy because uh, a conservative government lost in the Labor government of Mr. Whitlam came in and it caused enormous problems with the American alliance at the time, uh, particularly as Australia had actually fought in Vietnam with the Americans. And I always say, if Australia-US if Australia -US relations could survive Nixon and Whitlam, it can survive anything. And the, the alliance survived. I mean, the alliance has survived throughout uh, you know, decades. It's been very, very close. Uh, I'm not sure it matters who wins out of Trump and Biden. The Australia-US alliance will be very close. Um, and it'll be very close when either Trump or Biden leaves office. I mean, the Australia-US alliance is foundational for us. We're a very reliable ally for the Americans. Uh, and I really cannot see anything happening in terms of the domestic politics of the United States that will change that. Uh, one of the one of the, the problems I, I find with uh, a lot of foreign policy discussion in my own country, and I, I have no idea how people in other countries uh, fare, but I think in America there's a similar problem is that so much of Australia's foreign policy discussion comes out of our camp, capital of Canberra in the same way it obviously would in America with Washington. And the facts are the Australia-US alliance is not just obviously military, it's commercial. Uh, we, have, we, we, we have a large economic relationship as well. Uh, we have a lot of, obviously, we share a lot of the same banks, professional services firms and the like. We have very, very deep linkages. Our central banks are very closely connected. I mean, it's just one of those things where we have such a deep relationship with the Americans on so many different levels. The idea that the transitory nature of elections would change that is hard for me to see how it would matter. As for Trump, uh, my understanding is that Trump and our Prime Minister Scott Morrison get on very well and that Australia is looked upon as a reliable, uh, productive ally. And uh, I mean, under previous administrations, Obama liked Australia apparently. We're, we're kind of like the we're kind of the high, we're the high value, no mate, low maintenance ally, if I can put it that way. Australia is sort of High value, we contribute, we help out, and we're low maintenance. We really don't complain a lot. We don't ask a lot. Uh, I mean, I think to, I to take the, the point more broadly, if you actually look at a lot of America's problems, and, and, Trump, and Trump, Trump having problems with NATO is really just the Americans saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, Bush had problems with NATO. Obama had problems with NATO. The fundamental American problem is that NATO members think that the US will forever be prepared to pay an enormous amount of money to defend them. And the Europeans really do not have to do very much to keep the alliance chucking along. In Asia, uh, Australia, Korea, yeah. Japan, we all have a very close relationship with the Americans and we all pull our weight. We all obviously spend a lot on our militaries. We're reliable security partners. We don't cause problems with the Americans over issues they don't really care about. Um, the, the Europeans sort of do everything they can almost to sort of stick Uncle, Uncle Sam in the eye. We do not do that. And so we have a very different relationship with the Americans, say, from the Europeans. Uh, one other point to point out to uh, your viewers, obviously the Australia is very important from a security point of view. One of the big problems we've had in the last decade was firstly, 
the Obama se defense sequestration, which threw procurement problems for a lot of American allies uh, into, a, into a spin. It made the US reduced its spending, which made the unit cost of various weapons platforms the we all use more expensive. And at the same time, the NATO members continued not to spend as much on their, on their militaries, which caused additional problems for procurement there. So I think one of the things that any future US president is just going to have to do is you are going to have to hold NATO to account. I think Trump in his own, what I would call, earth sign way has done that. And I think NATO will actually probably come out of the Trump years a lot stronger for the simple fact that Trump has simply said what every other US president said quietly, and that is everyone in NATO, everyone in the alliance has got to play their part and everyone's got to open their wallets and, and contribute. And certainly uh, from an Australian point of view, to see an American president holding the European allies to account for being delinquents, uh, that's probably something privately we would not be unhappy with. Uh, that's something we would probably be quietly quite happy with. I imagine the Japanese, the Singaporeans, the Koreans as well, because we see ourselves as allies who contribute. Um, uh, one, one other thing is also Australia's always been very involved, at least since the fall of the Shah, in providing security to the Middle East. And so uh, Australia is still engaged in the Middle East, will probably be engaged in the Middle East, providing security to our traditional Arab partners there, um, probably for the rest of my life. And so I just think that's another area also where we obviously have a close relationship with the Americans, the British and the Canadians, our, our traditional allies, and I cannot see anything that will change that. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned several important, important issues that we probably need to unpack a little bit. Uh, one of uh, them is uh, about these regional actors reconfigurations uh, that are increasingly play a role for the US uh, security interests, specifically in Asia. Now, obviously, there is a power competition mostly taking place in this uh, corner of the world, but there is also a shift uh, of uh, powers reconfigurations and actors reconfigurations pointing to Asia and uh, you named several countries that are specifically very important in this uh, in this uh, region such as Japan, South Korea um, and increasingly India of course next to Australia. So what kind of special role do you see for Australia in these newly emerging formats? Let me just uh, mention one of, uh, of these uh, very important formats for our listeners and watchers. That's the quadrilateral security dialogue that's increasingly gaining importance, not only for the United States, but also for the regional actors uh, there. And it's an informal strategic dialogue between the United States, Japan, Australia and India. Now, obviously, India is also in a situation of a standoff once again with China along the line of control, just to point to uh, the geopolitical realities on the ground. Now, Indo-Pacific, then we have Southeastern Asia, and we have the South China Sea. Uh, there is a lot going on, and this is also the region with the most important maritime routes uh, with some of the most important choke points. And you also mentioned Middle East. So let's try to unpack a little bit, uh, starting with, uh, the, with Australia's role in these newly emerging formats. I mean, they've been existent, but now are uh, re being revived, let's put it that way. Do you also foresee a kind of a alternative Asian NATO because of some of the problems that you've also mentioned with uh, European allies being reluctant to contribute to the defense alliance or being reluctant to take a side in this systemic rivalry? Um, very, very good questions. In relation to the Quad and with India, our relationship with India is only going to grow. Um, Australia has been building a relationship with India for at least the last 20 years, and it's been very much intensifying in the last 10 years. One thing that's very interesting in the last few days with India is the uh, the rapprochement and the rapport between Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, and, uh, and Mr Modi, and the discussions about Australia very much looking to having a much deeper relationship with India in relation to, say, medicines, pharmaceuticals, biomedical research and the like. 
and and also to uh, ensure that Indian students feel very welcome to come to Australia because there is obviously great sensitivity. The supply changes supply chains may change with China, particularly the flow of students to Australia. So very much trying to bolster that relationship with India. But more to the point, on the security side, there's going to be a much more enhanced uh, relationship with India with regard to security, obviously with Japan and with the United States as part of a quad. One of the problems, as I'm sure not just you, but a lot of people watching would be aware, is that for decades we have tried to engage with India and it has not always been that easy. And uh, obviously India is a long-standing Russian ally and uh, much of the Indian um, arsenal is still of Russian origin. And so it's not necessarily for the military side as easy as you may think. Um, and also India, you know, for decades, was very proud of its non-aligned status and, and its status in the world. And it never really wanted to commit to a side, say, in the Cold War. Now, it could be that difficulties with China uh, forced India's hand in that regard. Uh, but certainly from an Australian perspective, anything we can do to build up our relationship with India and secure the Indian Ocean is of enormous importance. It's just, I, I cannot overstate how important that is to Australia. Um, Australia, as you can see from any map, is a massive island that flanks both the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So we have a very, very great concern about making sure that the Indian Ocean is secure. During the Cold War, the presence of the Soviet Navy in the Indian Ocean was a very big concern to Australia. And certainly um, for Australia's perspective, even though that has obviously receded, just making sure that the Indian Ocean is a global everyone can uh, traverse and that commerce can flow on is of everyone's interest. Now, going uh, slightly east uh, to what you said about the South China Sea and the Malacca Strait, I mean, that that sort of iron high, it's uh, for anyone who's sailed um, in the South China Sea, the Malacca Strait, uh, it's it's incredibly, it's the, how would you explain it? It's the 500 of, uh, merchant, of merchant mariners. It's it's extremely busy. Uh, and and it's one of those choke points that could literally stop global commerce in its tracks. Uh, so much of the world's uh, commerce flows by sea. Uh, one of the most important things that Australia uh, brings as a potential ally and as a power in the region is we obviously have a very good navy and a very good air force, and we we try and provide um, security in the region, and uh, we we put a very big uh, premise, a very big importance, on the on the uh, freedom of navigation and the ability of all, all everyone to be able to use the global commons that is the sea, in a peaceful, and uh, uh, and law-abiding manner. So. Obviously, what's happening in the South China Sea, particularly with China, is of great concern to us. Um, but it's also a great concern, not just to us, but to our allies as well. Obviously, Japan would be very concerned, as would Singapore. So, and obviously Vietnam as well. So there's a there's a growing uh, there's a growing awareness, I think, across the region that we're all going to have to become better friends. I think we're all very concerned, though, not to escalate things beyond what they are. Um, Finally, uh, the other point is uh, with um, with India is that we in Australia have very deep links with India. We have deep cultural links. Um, people can laugh when I say this, but we have those deep links of playing of the common law. India plays cricket. We have a huge Indian population in Australia. Um, you know, they are very, very important. Um, in, in the same respects, in Australia, the the, the Chinese Australian voting voting base is very important. So is the Indian, and so. Um, we have very, very deep cultural and human links between both China and India. And for a country like Australia, which is very much an immigrant country, um, those those factors do not tend to get covered by a lot of people, but they are very important. So uh, uh, the 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 importance of India is just going to grow and grow in the next 20, 20 years for Australia. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something very interesting, uh, that is that um, one of the traditional friends of India, that's Russia. Uh, it's been a relationship uh, over decades. Uh, during the Cold War, even though that India was uh, part of the block of the non-aligned countries, that this kind of friendly relations uh, have been uh, built um, in various fields to exchange of um, political, economic ties, students, and so on and so long. 
and uh, more importantly, in the field of uh, defense military ties, there have always been a, a transfer of uh, military equipment, arms sales, and so on and so on, and that continued also in uh, the last thirty uh, in the last thirty years, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, Russia is playing a very interesting role, also between China and India, is trying somehow to mediate disputes uh, specifically when it comes to possible tensions uh, between these two countries and on the other side Russia has basically built a new relationship with uh, China, an unprecedented uh, systemic coordination in various fields, the Dragon Bear as I called it in 2015, still very much growing, right? Uh, to this date, and um, some ana analysts are calling this Dragon Bear a marriage of uh, convenience or interim alliance destined to fail. But on the other side, uh, I think that there is still a very much a, 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 a large potential that might be explored with devastating consequences for the interests of the West, including Australia. So what is uh, your understanding regarding Russia's role between the United States and China? That means what will be, in your view, the, the role of Russia in an emerging systemic rivalry? Um, and then a provocative question on uh, my side, do you think that there will be a kind of a rapprochement between uh, European powers and Russia uh, in order to face uh, rising Chinese power on the old continent. What is your take on this? How do you see actually these evolving relationships? What is your take also on the Dragon Bear, of course? How do you see the Russia-China relation? Okay, um, I'm... I, I share, to some degree, the analysis of our former uh, Defence Secretary, Paul Dibb, who put out a book at the end of last year on the China-Russia relationship. And I've, I've always been very interested in the dragon bear. Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter, for instance, will know that I often talk about the dragon bear. Now, it may be an alliance of convenience, but a lot of alliances are of convenience. I mean, during the Second World War, um, the, the British, the Americans and ourselves allied with the Soviets in a, in a marriage of convenience to, to defeat the Nazis and, and to defeat the Japanese. And as soon as that was over, the alliance ended, but it was an alliance. And so um, I, I am quite concerned about the degree to which the Russians are actually committed to Dragon Bear. Um, I, I think there's a great concern for us that if you look at, say, like the Shanghai organisation and, and to some degree you might say, well, that's not really like NATO, it's, it's a paper tiger. It, it may be, but it's the beginning of something. Everything begins as something. Every alliance begins as a paper tiger. It's the nature of alliance. It begins as, as, as literally a scrap of paper, as the Kaiser said. But it eventually becomes like the scrap of paper, something people go to war over. And I, my concern is that, for, particularly for a country like Australia, if, if China and Russia deepen their alliance, and particularly with Iran as part of it, you're starting to look at three very, very large powers dominating the Eurasian landmass. The one interesting thing when you mention India is both India and Turkey are not necessarily as opposed to, say, the Shanghai partners as we are. And, uh, and that's something that does concern me. I mean, it may be that Turkey can keep one foot in both camps. I mean, Turkey, after all, sees itself as a bridge of civilizations, the former Asia Minor. But from our perspective in 2020, it's very concerning that Turkey never quite seems to know whose side it's on, despite the fact that it was a member of NATO that NATO members uh, did a lot for during the Cold War. And so I'm, uh, I'm greatly concerned by the dragon bear, generally. Um, I would like to see uh, if, if, if the Russians, I'll start again, if the Russians are not serious about deepening the relationship with China, it's an awfully unproductive way for the Russians to go about their affairs and risk upsetting the Americans to the degree they do by deciding to be basically the arms maker and the trainer of the Americans' number one adversary. I think that part of the Russians and what they're doing does concern me. And, and, I, and anyone who follows me knows I'm not unsympathetic to some of the Russian grievances. Um, 
I think one of the dumber things that the West has done, and the West does a lot of stupid things, um, anyone familiar with Western policy in the Middle East over the last 20 years would be more than familiar with that. But uh, I, I think the West does some dumb things. And I'm not unsympathetic to some of the Russian claims. I think the way the Russians were treated at the end of the Cold War was stupid. And I, and I agree with the late President Richard Nixon, who said the greatest fear we should all have is a Weimar Russia, you know, a Weimar Russia with nuclear weapons. That should terrify everyone. And so that, that concerns me greatly. At the same time, I think Putin is a very, very um, cunning person. I think in some respects he's underrated for his ability to think through uh, the second and third order effects of a policy. I, I tend to think that most analysts get Russia and China around the wrong way. I think one of the dumbest things I read about uh, China analysis is from people thinking that um, she and the inner circle of the communist, Chinese Communist Party are some sort of Sun Tzu eight chess players who are way ahead of everything. And I think that's just complete nonsense. I think she is barely holding on to power. I think the Communist Party has suffered a lot over the last couple of years in terms of uh, performance legitimacy and making their own people believe in them. And I think every Chinese communist leader since at least 1971 has the ghosts of Lin Bao haunting them and they're concerned that they may not be able to control the military in the end. Um, I always point out to people, whenever someone gets power, the first thing they do is they have to lock down the Central Military Commission. And, and you know, China has a great concern that you know, uh, the country can always fracture. Uh, China, China seems to have two speeds in history, um, either a very, very strong central government or regional warlordism. And I think for someone like Xi, I, we tend to think that in the West, we tend to think, well, they're very, very cunning, uh, smart thinkers. A lot of the time they are just improvising and holding, holding things together and doing whatever they have to do to keep power. I, I see Putin slightly differently. I think Putin has an idea of what he wants to do. I think it's very much almost as if Putin is just replaying the, a playbook that the Tsars would recognise, and that is that Russia has historic domains, it has historic needs, and that Russia will do what it has to do, including hybrid warfare, to get them. And I think it's a really big problem, particularly, um, as I mentioned, the study by Paul Dibb, it's a very, very big problem in, where there are former Soviet lands and there are large ethnic Russian populations. That there is a very, very big problem with that, the Russians have shown a great ability to mobilise um, expatriate populations in other people's countries, and that does concern me a great deal. So uh, I I find the dragon bear understudied. I have no idea why. It's just it's just silly how much people try and put obvious alliance problems into silos of nation states, as if you can understand what China is doing without understanding what Russia is doing, and understanding what Russia is doing without what understanding what China is doing. When both of them have an interest in, as Dib said in his very good paper, revising the um, the state of the world and changing things around. The other one, obviously, is Iran. Iran has a very similar view. And can I just say, as someone who's speaking from a country that is just 120 years old, I'm not unsympathetic to claims from very, very ancient populations in very, very proud nations that they deserve respect. I, I'm, I'm actually not someone who thinks that you should be blind to that. I think you, I think a very clear eye of history and of how cultures, and particularly strategic cultures, see themselves is very, very important. Uh, from an Australian perspective, we're much more, I think, realistic about this, say, than other people are. So, for instance, during the during the conflict in Syria, I think most Australians were, were certainly in uh, anyone you talk to who discussed foreign policy and national security matters, most people were fairly resigned or even, in some respects, enthusiastic for the fact that the Russians went into Syria and bolstered the regime and basically took the war over. Uh, no one will say that out loud, but most people were happy that the Russians got in, bolstered Assad, and basically took the fight to ISIS. I mean, if you remember the period in 2014, 2015, 2016, Obama was dithering. He had no idea what he was doing. And uh, it was a, chronically, a chronic problem of insecurity in Europe. You had terrorist attacks in Paris, of all places, one of the great cities of the world, one of my favourite cities, was being uh, the subject of terrorist attacks. There was no very, very strong approach being taken to, to what to do with ISIS. And the Russians coming in and steadying the ship was something that was in all our interests. We, we will never say that out loud because the way the Russians resolve a problem is somewhat more kinetic, say, than we might be comfortable with. But the Russians did what had to be, do, had to be done. And uh, certainly from an Australian perspective, I'm not sure we were necessarily unhappy with that, as opposed to what the Russians did in Ukraine. So hopefully that answers your point. Mm -hmm. or answers your question. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Now let's move because we have so many other questions to cover and the time is running. Um, let's move to Europe. Uh, now the European Union's top diplomat, uh, Joseph Borrell, has just recently pointed to a growing uh, discussion in Europe. That means the European institutions, but also the European member states on how to um, go um, or navigate, let's put it that way, to navigate between China and the United States. Adding that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, basically could be seen as a turning point um, in these uh, relationships and that the pressure to choose sides is growing. That means, of course, for Europe, a very similar situation in which on the one side, European um, allies have their loyalty uh, towards the United States, uh, specifically when it comes to security, defense, uh, foreign policy. But on the other side, well, China is a very desired uh, large trading power, right? So it's also the desire to go to business as usual once uh, the COVID-19 is over. So could COVID-19 really be a turning point for Europe? Um, and will Europe be really faced with this either or decision uh, where it has to choose sides? And one additional provocative question on my side in this uh, context, do you see that or do you think that Europe might turn into a geopolitical backyard of the global affairs in the next decade? Okay. Excellent questions. Um, I, I, I don't think, as, as someone who's often very critical of the Europeans, I, I don't think Europe will ever be a geopolitical backyard. Uh, I, I just don't. I think it's. It, I think that, that's very, very unlikely. I do think there is a, and I, I mean this with the greatest respect, and I know uh, I'm speaking to you and you're, you're in Vienna, the home of Metternich and of Realpolitik. I, I do think there is a European tendency to think that you can always have it all with everyone all the time. And in that sense, I think the Europeans very much think that they can be, at the same time, uh, NATO members and allies with the Americans, but also somehow take a foot out of that camp and be European, um, good Europeans who can deal with anyone, including the Chinese. I think that may be a problem. I, I think I would, I would hesitate to offer any opinion on the longer terms effects of the virus, because I think, I think none of us really knows how devastating the virus was in China itself. I think obviously the Chinese have a, Chinese statistics are not things that you would uh, take to the bank, as we say. Uh, they're not things that we would, we would necessarily dock in. So I, I, that, that much I would be very, very careful of doing. I think for the Europeans, they have to have a, a bit of a think about the fact that this isn't a problem they have with the Americans, a problem they've had under other presidents. Trump is just the current president and he's a lot more open about it. But the Americans have had this problem. And they should also realise that NATO doesn't just link uh, the Europeans, say, to the Americans. It links them to the Canadians, the British. Australia is a partner uh, with NATO. Um, it links them to a lot of things. If they are trying to build the European Union into a competitor, uh, almost political framework that does its own diplomacy, I think the Europeans are playing with fire. And I'm just saying bluntly what I think a lot of people... The said people who speak English as a first language might say, bluntly, is the Europeans are playing with fire. And I, I can understand why the Europeans may take that view. I'm, I'm all for being quite realistic about things, but I think it's going to be very, very hard uh, for Europeans. Can I say, particularly if you're, say, Poland or any of the Visegrad Four, I think the idea that somehow you want to lose, uh, you want to leave the diplomacy with not just China, but with Russia, to Berlin, uh, absent uh, working through the NATO structure, I think you have very solid historic reasons why you would might not want to do that. And so I, I think for the Europeans to the degree they think they have a choice, I think their real choice is whether to keep muddling along or not. If I was European, I'd be a very strong believer in muddling along. I would try and keep the Americans placated, and I would try and keep obviously the Europe, the Chinese as customers placated. I, that's what I would be trying to do. I, I think I think 
Europe is always simply going to matter. I think a lot of the um, I think a lot of the sort of pessimism around Europe is unfounded. I just think uh, a lot of European polities lack good leaders, and I think um, I certainly think it's very interesting. I'd be very interested to see if Macron gets re-elected in France, for instance. Um, I, I I can see why he won. I I just don't think it's enough to be the non-Le Pen. I think you I think you have to have something of your own. And I I'm we're now three or four years into into Macron, and I I still have no idea what he's. So I I think Europe needs just say better leaders. Uh, I, I can also just say, I mean, no one can really say at this juncture what it's going to be like having Britain out of the European Union. Britain will obviously still be a big player in NATO, but Britain will be out of the European Union and how that changes things. I mean, one thing the British did do in the European Union is they obviously vetoed a lot of things. Um, uh, yeah, uh, there's, a strong, there's a long history in British history of just saying no. Um, but I, I just don't know what the, I just don't know what the, the British will end up doing uh, in Europe, once they once they are once they are literally out of Europe, the European Union. So, um, all I can all I can all I can offer of, to to Europe is a certain caution about uh, trying to think that you can have the uh, the cake of the NATO alliance and the and the, the commercial eating of the Chinese. I think the Americans particularly will take a very strong view of that. And just as an aside, the Americans have taken strong views on that, even with say Israel about Israel's relationship with China. Israel's technological relationship with Israel has been a burr in the saddle with the Americans for 20 years, um, if not longer, actually. So the idea that somehow the Americans would not be prepared to play uh, play very hard with the Europeans um, is, I think, far-fetched. And if you look at what the Americans have done uh, with the British over Huawei and the presence of Huawei in the, or the, the planned presence of, of, of Huawei in the uh, British communications networks, I think... I can't emphasise this enough to people. If the Americans are prepared to do that with the British and the Israelis, I assume they're very well prepared to do it with Europeans who have not built up the goodwill bank with Washington that, say, the British and the Israelis have done. Yes, it's uh, <laughs> the awareness about the possible risks stemming from uh, 5G uh, network installed uh, by the Chinese on the European continent. Uh, this awareness actually emerged after COVID-19 virus outbreak because I can tell you that um, the leading governments of uh, the countries that you've mentioned, uh, such as UK, France, Germany, they were quite friendly about the idea of having Huawei 5G networks uh, in their countries. So basically there, were, there was a sort of a debate taking place in these countries but on very limited scope and the, the COVID-19 was actually the trigger for, uh, for more awareness uh, among political decision makers when it comes to this issue, which is a good thing. But on the other side, think about of, uh, reality if we didn't have the COVID-19, in which actually probably there would have not been any debate about it. Then on the other side, if mentioned also something very, very important, that is uh, the role of the UK, specifically in the field of uh, defense security. They are a traditional partner, very strong, special partner, not only to the United States, but they have also, you are also partnering in the Fairfax. Um, what really is going to be decisive is that we have once again a split of geoeconomics because if you look at what the European Union has been doing in the region, for instance, I've checked um, there is a negotiation uh, with Australia on a free trade agreement, certainly important for Australia since uh, the European Union represented the Australia's third largest trading partner uh, in 2018, and Australia is ranked the 19th largest um, partner, trade partner uh, in, in goods for the European Union. But on the other side, we have the issue with security, we have the issue with emerging geopolitics. So it's going to be very tough to combine these different interests and to combine geopolitics and geoeconomics, which is often, which often goes uh, together, right? So, uh, yes, on the one side, Australia is, how is Australia looking actually at the European Union? Is there any 
Is there any discussion or debate about uh, future relations with uh, the European Union, with Brussels, and with the key oh. states aside from Great Britain? We are not discussing. Oh, no, no. Yes. yes, yes. There's a very, very strong push at the moment, obviously. Uh, for, for Europe and for a European free trade agreement. There are obvious obstacles. I mean, how much do Europeans want to give Australian, particularly agricultural exports, access to their own markets and the like? Those, those are natural rub points. But Australia is a great customer of European uh, of European goods. Um, obviously, um, you know, the, if you drive around the streets of Sydney, um, there are you know, large numbers of BMWs, Audis, Mercedes-Benz and the like. Um, Australians tend to be very big customers for high-end um European goods, obviously Qantas, one of the biggest airlines in the world that buys Airbus. I mean, there are a lot of things that Europe sells to Australia. And so um, we're, um, we're, we're just very, very uh, concerned, obviously, that uh, from a security perspective, that we not have any uh, diminution of the alliance. Uh, I think just to, to, from Australia's point of view, we, we will be, we obviously have like our traditional allies and that, that goes back to the Second World War and goes back to the First World War and so on. We're very happy to help out the Europeans. I mean, in, in Afghanistan, um, Australian troops uh, served alongside the Dutch, particularly. Uh, we have very close relationships with the Europeans. Um, we have a very good rapport with the French, apart from the fact that I think more Australians at war dead is buried in France than in any other country on earth. Australia's a very close relationship with the Europeans. We have a very good rapport. Obviously, uh, France still holds New Caledonia, which is to our uh, northeast, and uh, and the French are involved in our submarine program. So we have, we have a close relationship with a lot of the European powers. Um, on the economic front, it's always going to be one of the big problems we have with Europe is that we want to sell all our agricultural projects into Europe, and Europe obviously has its own agricultural sector that it wants to look after. And so that how you sell needle is something that I think uh, trade lawyers and negotiators will be fighting over for at least a decade. I think it will be very difficult. For the Europeans, their view would be, well, hold on, we have a market in Australia that's happy to buy our aircraft and buy our luxury goods and the like. Why do we need to really do anything? It's a it's an inelastic demand, and we we why do we have to give anything of it? And so um, it's one of those things with Europe. I think I think it's one thing quite appreciate. Uh, a lot of their pessimism is unfounded. I mean, there's a lot of just demand for everything European. That even if Europeans are a bit over it, the rest of the world is not. I think from Australia's perspective, our great concern is more on. If we're going to be integrating a security alliance, we all have to be playing on the same team. And if you want to play the, um, the Anglo alliance, we have to know that you're with us and not um, also being prepared to allow Huawei into your communications network. And I, 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 if I can just slightly deviate, one of the big problems we've had here in Australia, and I imagine is going to be a problem that Europe has insofar as it's had it already with the Russians, is we have a great concern over foreign interference, particularly Chinese interference in our politics. We have a great problem in Australia, as the Americans do, and I imagine the Canadians do, of politicians leaving office and people leaving office in high places and going to work as little more than Chinese interests. There's a great concern that we have in that. We also have the concern of just naked political something that Australia has a real problem with with China. And so insofar as uh, Europe does or does not take that seriously it will affect not just relations with Australia, but with the Americans as well. And so the one thing I, I say to people that I, I just don't think people are talking about is a lot of the technology end user part of trade and how we get on. I know people think it's police now. I think that's just going to get policed more and more as the years go by. I think the idea the Americans particularly are going to allow uh, some of the more lax regimes in the last 20 years to continue on technology transfer is just ridiculous. I think. Um, uh, I, I could almost see the Americans forming their own regime with Japan, Korea and ourselves and others in Singapore uh, to try and protect um, on, on the technology front because there is obvious great concern with that. Um, beyond that, I, I would not want to say any more, but I, I, it's just a problem insofar as all of our architecture is there. So I always, a former Australian Prime Minister said this, he said, the problem, the problem security has is that all of the architecture is in Europe. So NATO was built, there were a whole lot of institute there was nothing quite like that built in asia there are alliances we have alliance with americans japanese and so on but we don't have really a collective pact in the way that perhaps we would like we we have the old um ceto treaties and the like but we just don't have something like that i, I could see the americans perhaps not under trump but under a future president wanting to have some formalized relationship 
America's open our lives. And I think certainly from Australia's perspective, particularly if that was if that was part of a broader trade discussion, because America actually has a trade surplus with Australia. If that was part of a broader trade surplus, that would be very attractive to Australia. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I'm Final question on my side because there were also uh, questions coming from the audience and I want to give uh, some space uh, to questions uh, also from other people who are watching us or listening to us. Now my last question is um, related to one of your blogs, uh, recent blogs uh, and I can highly recommend uh, your blogs to all people who are interested in uh, realpolitik, uh, history, uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, analysis. Uh, it's called strategycouncil.blogspot.com. And in one of your recent blogs, you um, wrote about the geopolitical lessons of 2020, which is very much, still very much relevant. And I would like to ask you what are the lessons of the coronavirus? from the point of geopolitics and security interests of the West. Could you do a little wrap-up for our listeners uh, based on, on your analysis from this Sure. Um, sure. I mean, I'm, and by the way, I'm, I'm happy to stay as long as people are happy to ask questions. I'm, uh, I'm a lawyer by trade. You, you continue uh, advocating in court until the judge is finished. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to stay uh, as long as you would like. Um, the, I think the, the, the primary problem that the coronavirus revealed is just how few advanced Western countries can actually make their own medicines, their own, uh, their own protective equipment, even things like uh, their own ventilators and the like, and just how necessary it is to have a domestic manufacturing capacity. You cannot run a modern nation state on the principle, say, that we will always be able to buy it off the shelf or buy it through Amazon or whatever. That, I think, we've all learned a lesson with. Um, one thing I think that has gone unnoticed in the American is that America is like Australia. It's a federal country. Um, so the national government has the responsibility for borders and for national security. Beyond that, you're very much at the mercy of your individual states, some of which will be run well, some of which will be run badly. One thing I think the Americans did well, um, and I, I would give Trump credit for this, is he, he got the American uh, private sector into gear and the Americans now are just churning out ventilators. America looks like it's going to end up finishing uh, this crisis with a huge number of ventilators it probably didn't need. But it shows that the domestic production is still there. For a country like Australia, I think we need to go back to having a much more self-sufficient attitude in the way of drugs, um, uh, the ability to make just basic medical equipment and the like. I think every modern nation state should want to do that. I think the other big problem um, is also that in the same way that we... Uh, we meet and share military and like secrets. I think we really have to take public health as seriously as we take our security. I also think, um, you know, Australia as a country, as anyone who comes here knows or who reads about, Australia takes borders very seriously. Um, Australia is not a country that you want to try and enter into illegally. So we take borders very seriously. I think as seriously we have to take is the public health of people coming into the country and checking that they're that they're they're fit and uh, if they're not well, looking after them in some way. Uh, I'm not I'm I'm certainly not one for ever turning people away if they're sick. I think you should look after them. But I think just that sense of public health emergencies, particularly as um, we in the West, particularly we have these very large dense cities which are uh, somewhat unique in our historical experience. We have these very large dense cities which are almost designed to spread uh, viruses by the fact that people live so closely together, and I think. Perhaps one thing we might want to look at, certainly a country the size of Australia can look at this, is decentralising big cities and seeing why do we need to have cities. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Sydney. It's got anywhere between five and six million people in it at any one time. Why, what do we actually need? Is it good to have big cities like this or should we be encouraging people to live a more decentralised lifestyle? So um, I, just, I, I think there are a lot of lessons for national governments, particularly about their cities, about their transport systems, about their borders, about how they secure their country, not just from the traditional threats, but also from threats, say, of, of disease and the like. Because uh, Australia has been somewhat mercifully spared because we shut our borders, we have a good public health system, and Australians are, despite the national myth of Australians, we're all rugged individuals, we're all rugged Anzacs, we're all uh, the man from Snowy River and the like. Australians are actually very good at following rules. 
and doing what they're told. Uh, one of the things I always say to people, do not, if you come to Australia, whatever else you do, never jump a queue. Always line up and wait your turn because in Australia, queuing is something we do almost religiously. And in the same way that we're very good at queuing and filling out forms and doing what we're told, Australians were very good at following the doctor's orders and social distancing and the like. And I think that is something that we've done very well and we've learnt well is to trust our medical experts who've done a quite good job. Uh, I think in the wash-up of all this, though, the, the supply chains will be the big thing that we take away from it. And already there is almost a bipartisan agreement in Australia that we really have to build more here in Australia. We just simply cannot outsource that, particularly to China. And we have to build more of that immediate um, capacity here in the country itself. And we simply have to be more self-reliant as we were up until the major economic reforms of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we managed to cover everything uh, that at least I was, uh, was eager to ask you. And uh, the final minutes are reserved for our listeners. Now there is a question on the quad, on the quadrilateral security uh, format, uh, and it's a question that um, is as follows: How effective do you think that this quad will be in the future? And then there is question on Taiwan. I mean, related also to the developments in Hong Kong, do you think that China is prepared to make a move uh, in Taiwan? And should Australia do anything to help Taiwan, uh, specifically with the Pratas Island? Uh, and what would be uh, or what should be the Australia's position in case there is a um, emerging tension there? Okay, two excellent questions. In relation to the Quad, Australia, the United States and Japan have a very, very close working relationship. We obviously are allies, we get on and the like. The Quad will be as strong as India allows it to be. So if India wants the Quad to be strong, it will be strong. So if India wants to join the Quad and be part of the team, it will be strong. If India does not want to be part of the team, if it just wants to be an occasional participant in the Quad, then it will probably just be a, a nice to have uh, friendship that we have. And that, that might not be a bad thing. It might be something we just have to build on over time. But the quad will be whatever, effectively, what India wants it to be because they are the ones coming into an old alliance between ourselves, the Japanese and the Americans. In respect of Taiwan, that's an excellent question. Uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm just speaking for myself here and I, I read what everyone else reads. I, my own sense is I think the Chinese have got more than enough on their plate with home and with, um, they've got more than enough place with home and the virus and the deaths from the virus and the fallout of bad I think the idea that the Chinese would want to uh, try and pick a fight, particularly in respect of Taiwan now, would be just madness. I also think any Chinese move in an American election year, particularly where Trump is one of the candidates, would be just insane. So um, having said that, uh, strange things happen, but that, that would just be my one takeaway. In relation to Hong Kong, I, I just think it's very, very... I think it's tragic what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, I don't just say that Hong Kong and the people, but uh, we have deep relationships with Hong Kong. As I said, 100,000 Australians uh, live and work in Hong Kong. Hong Kong uh, was obviously a British colony. I, I realised why that might have stuck in Beijing's uh, crawl, but the actual Hong Kong people were, um, in many respects, very sad to see the British go. Um, it's a feature of protests against Chinese action in Hong Kong. In Sydney, you will see expatriate Chinese students, particularly, I've actually tweeted out images of that, flying the old British uh, dragon and lion flag from British Hong Kong. So um, many people in Hong Kong want to stay. They want to stay and fight for their rights. People like Martin Lee and the like are there fighting for Hong Kong and to keep Hong Kong under the uh, one China, two systems. Uh, all I will say for China's perspective is if they do not, if the Chinese do not, um, the Chinese do not see that they are literally forcing Taiwan to never accept any form of uh, relationship of a, a one nation way with China after what they're doing in Hong Kong. Uh, Beijing's mad. I mean, Taiwan is watching very closely and has for two years what is happening in Hong Kong. And the idea that somehow China can think that, say, Taiwan will take a different approach um, to China, uh, irrespective of what China does in Hong Kong, I think is mad. 
Uh, in respect of uh, Australia's position on Taiwan, uh, Australia's position would be with the Americans and the Japanese. So I think one thing is it's not just that America has a close relationship with Taiwan, Japan does as well. The idea that Japan, a onlooker, if Taiwan was attacked by, by China. I find, I find, just personally, I find that very, very hard to believe. I think we need to ratchet down tensions. I think. Mm-hmm. Last very, very provocative question because we have to finish with something very provocative uh, uh, since uh, these are figuratively very hot topics. Uh, I mean, you are living literally in a, one of the hotspots of the world, but figuratively seen also. Uh, so what do you think? Who is going to politically survive? Uh, Xi Jinping or the Russian president Vladimir Putin? Who will be the one who is going to make it longer in terms of political life, of course? We know that both are okay. for long, uh, long career. Uh, both uh, have, I mean, on the one side, Xi Jinping already being elected for life, but also right now the COVID-19 has affected uh, Putin's, uh, uh, Putin's efforts towards uh, uh, constitutional change and the possibility for extending mandates until 2036. This is what I'm trying to provocatively ask for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the processes. So what's your take? Okay, my take is, first of all, I've noticed there's been a lot, lot, lot less discussion of Xi as president for life in the last three months than there was in the last last year or so. And so um, I, my own view is that Putin leaves, his duration in office since taking over from Yeltsin and being basically the power in the Kremlin, regardless of, of Medvedev, um, I, I think I think Putin will out outdo Xi in, in just in sheer longevity of time. Um, Xi may leave office after Putin, but 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 Putin will have clocked up more years. Um, in respect of Xi, I think only come back to, and this is not me trying to get out of answering a tough question. I just think it would be very foolish, particularly from way outside, uh, way outside of Beijing, to try and guess at what really is happening inside China. And I, I my own sense is that you, you can be president for life until you're not. And I think it's very, very hard to make a case that you should be president for life in circumstances where uh, you have presided over a terrible virus that spread throughout uh, the world and, and has really done tremendous damage to Chinese prestige. And so uh, I think it's very, very difficult. And just to very interesting what you said with Russia, I think the one, the one caveat I'd put on everything about Dragon Bear is that the, the virus is obviously spread into Russia. Russia had a very, very severe uh, lockdown of, of Russia in relation to the virus when it first started spreading. And it could be that Russians actually look at the China relationship and think, well, perhaps we might be better off trying to have a rapprochement. I just think at the end of the day, the Russians uh, want, a, want to be friends with people who will want to be accommodating to their needs. And at the moment, the Russian perception is that China is much more accommodating of their needs than the West is and, for the, to, that, to that degree, Russia would be a revisionist power wanting to be with another revisionist power. But uh, I, I think um, very cautious about believing that Xi will still be president for life. Um, I, I, the other thing I'd just say is that whenever China has massive convulsions, we almost never see them coming. Um, the Cultural Revolution was something that caught most of the West by surprise. Uh, same with the um, what happened to the Gang of Four and the like uh, when after Mao's death. A lot of the t- most of the time, we're surprised by what happens in China. I think the idea that anyone in the West has a great handle on what China might do, I think, is is silly. And so that's why I always advocate with the Chinese. Very making them in the corner and making making it difficult for them to reverse course. Since for Australia, they're one of our biggest, they're our biggest customer, and they're just they're one of the they're obviously the biggest player in our region. Um, I think it's very, very important for us to make sure that. We do our part, but 
retreat from some of the more silly things that have happened over the last few months. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for staying with me for the last five minutes and for covering all relevant geopolitical issues of the current global affairs. And for all our listeners and watchers, I strongly recommend Grace blog strategycouncil.blogspot.com and also of course the Twitter account of Gray because you can actually learn a lot about history, about uh, geopolitics, about realpolitik and uh, I warmly thank you for being with me and I wish you all the best and I hope that we can uh, talk about uh, these issues once again uh, very soon. Thank you, Gray. My, my absolute pleasure. I'm very happy to join uh, the conversation at any time. I've very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much.